everybody. I'm Paul Menzel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And we're the Old Dogs. If you've got about 20 minutes, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and join us. In today's episode, the Old Dogs wonder, what makes people think of old folks as comic characters? And in that light, we are going to review the new TV show, The Kaminsky Method. We'll tell you about a dating experiment that involves cows. We'll celebrate the great Motown Studios at the age of 60. We'll report on a robber who was unfortunate enough to choose a scooter to try and make his getaway. And we're going to ask the question, how high is up? In the Old Dogs interview, we're going to talk with Steve Epstein, a former stand-up comic who is still a pretty funny guy. Okay, Paul, what's on your mind? I'm wondering why it's okay to be making fun of getting old in TV and movies. Right. You know, yeah. a lot of the older characters are one-dimensional, mm. and, and the comedy revolves around being hard of hearing or having difficulty getting around or trouble seeing. Uh, what I'm afraid of is that it, it, with a pattern of mocking older people, we start to believe that they are less than. Does that make sense? Um as you speak about that, I think, you know, uh, most of these older characters we see in TV and the movies used to be younger characters in TV and the movies, <laughs> right? What is it about the way we view aging that tends to put people into a smaller box? Yes. We are always interested in, in TV shows or movies that feature older people as uh, rounded individuals, as complete individuals. Yeah. You know, like you, you, your favorite movie is... Red? Yeah. Yeah. Because? Because these are older people that really are multidimensional and that they are extremely capable. In fact, so capable that they are labeled extremely dangerous. Well, they're lethal, yes. <laughs> they're basically they should lethal. be arrested. Right. Um, and, you know, the, there was sort of a golden age, and I'm thinking of things like Murder, She Wrote, Matlock, Golden Girls, where age was treated uh, as a natural kind of a thing and not, not as a comic device. But they weren't lethal. No, they weren't. Well, the Golden Girls could have been lethal. <laughs> I suppose. Because uh, B. Arthur looked pretty tough. Yeah. I would say, Paul, that at least there is some light – on the horizon about this, because there are some new shows on TV now that seem to appeal to older folks and are actually very intelligently written and brilliantly acted. And uh, that's uh, actually the subject of our first pod nugget. You know, Jim, it's always a treat and a surprise to see older actors playing believable characters in a comedy. So, you and I give raves to a sitcom called The Kominsky Method on Netflix. Right. The show features the talents of two engaging and aging actors, Alan Arkin and Michael Douglas. Douglas plays Sandy Kaminsky, an often married minor actor who has become a minor acting coach, teaching the Kaminsky Method of naturalistic acting. And Arkin is his recently widowed agent, Norman Newlander, who seems to have lost interest in being an agent, and in life for that matter. The show revolves around the friendship and neediness of the two main characters. Their scenes together are always interesting, underplayed and honest, and usually extremely funny. 
They deal with some senior themes that aren't often explored, like grieving for your wife of many years, or in Douglas's case, a frantic fight against getting old. Okay, here's the disclaimer. Perhaps there are too many jokes about aging body parts. There are also a lot of in-jokes about L.A. and the entertainment industry. And it is about two guys. The women in the cast are supporting players. Nevertheless, it is the best attempt in years to capture the concerns of people our age. So, check it out. The Kaminsky Method on Netflix. It's funny, and each episode is only 20 minutes long. It's worth the time. Yeah. Well, you can call it utter nonsense, or maybe taking the bull by the horns. Mm. There's now a Tinder-style app called Tutter for cows and bulls looking for that special relationship. This item comes to us from the Houston Chronicle, dated February 12, 2019. Tutter is actually a mobile app for cattle breeders, which is available in the U.K., It helps you find breeding matches by viewing such details as age, location, and owner. There are also profile descriptions such as quiet, well-grown young bull ready to work. I suppose like any online dating sites, profiles are enhanced to make the suitor appear more suitable. We are not making this up. The designers of the app say Tutter seeks to unite sheepish farm animals with their soulmates. Using social, they actually said this. Using social media can speed up the mating process that may often involve long distance travel. Is there anything about crossing state lines involved here? <laughs> oh, that's right. For, it's UK. For, Never mind. So, if you by chance end up in the livestock business in the UK, you may want to give Tutter a try rather than looking for love in all the wrong pastures. You know, the Motown sound was dancing music with memorable hooks and an infectious beat. More importantly, Motown Records introduced dozens of talented black artists to mainstream pop culture. The December 2018, January 2019 issue of AARP, the magazine, paid tribute to the 60th anniversary of the founding of Motown Records. The name Motown was a contraction of Motortown, referring to Detroit. The city had a lot of talented musicians, but it took the vision and drive of Barry Gordy, a local record producer and songwriter, to bring that talent together in a creative powerhouse of black artists. Gordy's concept was an assembly line of artists creating musical hits. He had 17 staff songwriters and producers turning out product for some of the greatest musical talent of the 60s. The sound was embellished by a group of masterful studio musicians called the Funk Brothers. Backup singing was supplied by a trio called the Andantes, who added their gospel-tinged harmonies to hundreds of records. Between 1962 and 1971, Gordy's labels launched 180 number one hits worldwide. This is just some of the artists who contributed to that success. Jackie Wilson, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas, Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, Gladys Knight and the Pips. I always wanted to be a Pip. And you are a Pip. Thank you. The Jackson Five, Aretha Franklin. Diana Ross and the Supremes, Mary Wells, Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, The Temptations, and The Four Tops. Amazing collection of talent, Amazing. Eh? And, you know, Paul, I grew up in Detroit in the 60s. I was at a college prep high school on Seven Mile Road in Detroit. 
we suburban white guys got introduced to a whole new kind of music, a whole new world of possibilities that we had never thought of before. And we can attribute that to Barry Gordy as a musical bridge builder. In 1972, Gordy moved the company to Los Angeles so he could pursue his interest in film and TV. He finally sold the label in 1988. Motown Records is still around with a handful of artists, but nothing like the glory days in the 60s in Detroit. The Motown sound had us dancing in the street. A bank robber in Austin, Texas, pulled a classic dumb move by making his getaway on an electric scooter. Now, this pod nugget is from the Washington Post for January 29th, 2019. Now, in the first place, the top speed for a scooter is about 15 miles an hour. Not a good choice for a fast getaway. In the second place, video revealed that the scooter was a rental owned by Uber. <laughs> when renting a scooter... You got to provide contact information, right? Phone number, email, and a credit card. In addition, GPS built into the scooter traced his getaway. He was quickly arrested, probably quicker than his getaway. Now we present this information as a public service in case you are planning a bank robbery. Right. When you get to that getaway item on your checklist, do not include rent a scooter as one of your choices. Preferred would be a borrowed car, city bus, hitchhiking, bicycle, skateboard, or even a brisk jog. Remember that old saying, when you fail to plan, you plan to, to fail. As you are probably aware, there's a space race going on. Now, it's not between U.S., Russia, and China. It's between Western companies like Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin to become the first to crew commercial flights into space. This item comes to us from the Washington Post for December 11th, 2018. Now, the question has arisen, how high is up? If you're charging people for a ride into space, there has to be an agreement where space begins. Well, there is no precise definition of where space begins in international law. The Earth atmosphere does not end at a precise altitude. It just gets progressively thinner. The Kármán line, named for one of the founders of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, sets the boundary at 62 miles or 100 kilometers. This has been widely accepted to date. However, the Air Force and the Federal Aeronautics Administration set the boundary at 50 miles. So, who cares? Well, Blue Origin plans to fly its customers to 62 miles or more. Virgin Galactic is aiming for the more fuel-efficient 50-mile limit. Until there is some international agreement for the boundary of space, you'll just have to pick and choose when you buy your ticket. Now, many countries prefer that the boundary of space remain ambiguous. If you're flying an aircraft, national sovereignty matters. A country controls their airspace. However, a spacecraft can fly anywhere they want if they're in space. There are sure to be more disputes in the future about who controls what in space, wherever space starts. Our interview today is with Steve Epstein. Steve was a professional comic who got his start in Houston at the Comedy Workshop, a club owned by my partner Paul Menzel back in the 80s. Now Steve enjoys selling collector recordings on eBay. 
Steve is not exactly a linear thinker. We cover a lot of territory, so fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy ride. Hey, Steve, this is Paul Manzo. Hey, Steve, this is Jim Conlon. What a great voice you have, Jim. I really uh, I'm impressed. He's aud- he's auditioning for you now. <laughs> you you have such a checkered employment career. I want to ask you about some specific things. What is the strangest thing that happened to you when you were Ronald McDonald? Oh, well you know, actually the strangest one was after I was Ronald McDonald. I met this girl when I was in Austin. I was taking Kirlian photographs, which are pictures of the aura. <laughs> on the drag in Austin. And uh, anyway, I met this girl who I was really into uh, quickly. She was very spiritual, which I was into at the time. And uh, anyway, she turned out to be a Mooney. And I ended up in New York with the Moonies. And I never got close to brainwash because I got in a situation where I was leading a troop of clowns. Reverend Moon was doing... Uh, rented Yankee Stadium, and he was coming there to do a speech, and we were going to fill up Yankee Stadium. I figured there's going to be a lot of protesters there. So if I got a group of clowns, it'd break up the protesting. And also I would lead their band. They had a band that uh, I would juggle in front of, basically in Ronald McDonald makeup. You know, I used a different kind of outfit, but the only face I knew from the Ronald McDonald days was Ronald McDonald. And McDonald's, I'm sure, wouldn't have been thrilled. Uh, Steve, uh, you were working as a comic, during the 80s, and I always kind of think of that as the golden age of comedy. Would you agree? Oh, the 80s were phenomenal, the early 80s. Um, yeah, because uh, here I was, you know, the first night I stepped on stage, I believe I did 45 minutes at your club. I was typically doing about 45 minutes because I, you could do anything. They were so hungry there. I was juggling, I was telling old jokes, I was doing Alan Sherman song parodies. Uh, you, you were well known for the comic who really didn't have an act. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I did, but I kept using your club to experiment. I just got, you know, I, I sucked at improv, as you know, and uh, but uh, I I still would do it all the time, not with other people. You know? I would improv among myself on your stage, you know, just because I, I love the thrill of creation, you know, I was much more, once I figured out a joke worked, okay, well, that works, let's move on and find another one. What is the thing that you have done or are doing now that you love the most, that you feel is most like you? Oh, well, I just, just before uh, you called, I was busy doing my real job, which is uh, taking my grandchildren to school. I have six grandchildren. I'm, uh, they're all, well, they're not all Filipinos, a couple are half Filipinos, but uh, Lolo means grandpa in Tagalog, which is Philippine language. And uh, I, I swear to God, in a, if you gave me a thousand choices, I would never have come up with my ending up as a Filipino Lolo. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> that was never what I thought my career was going to be. But then I also sell records in order to support my uh, Lolo-ing. Yeah, tell us about that business. It's fascinating. Uh, well... I started in the flea markets when I was only 15, and uh, the common market on the Southwest Freeway in Houston. And I ended up selling used records, having more space than anybody out there, possibly anybody in, uh, in Houston. And um, I would hire my friends to sell for me. Oh, when I think of the collector's items, I let slip through my fingers. But anyway, um, so I, I saved some of those. And I always thought, you know, once I got into show business. Before I was a comedian, I was working dinner theaters in Houston, Marion Americks, etc. And uh, 
I always figured if, if I, uh, I failed as a performer uh, that I would go back into selling records. But then CDs started coming out. I said, well, so much for that. But then turns out vinyl... By the way, if you want to get into the vinyl business selling records, the best way to do it is um, to go time travel. That's it. Because if you go back to when CDs were first coming out, if you can take a time traveling ship back to then, people were putting out boxes of records outside. They, they were just throwing them away. As some, what now sometimes would have been thousands of dollars worth of records, just throwing them away. And um, because they were promised that CDs never scratched, remember that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, so, so um, I kept some of them, but when I was getting out of stand-up comedy, I started going into performing at retirement homes just so I could stay at my rent control in Santa Monica. I was tired of living in a rent control right near the beach and, you know, being on the road nine months out of the year. So I started performing locally, and then... If, a friend of mine, another comic friend, Jeanette Frazier, she had uh, a friend, she lived in Malibu, and she had a friend who had a, a video store in Malibu. And uh, I ended up starting to stock his store with records. And uh, when his store closed, I was stuck with all these records, so I started selling on eBay. And so I have an eBay record store now. And so where do you find your vinyl? Um, they had a thrift store out here, a number of them, called Out of the Closet. And I was finding unbelievable showbiz collectibles, not just records, but original pressings that were just made for the movie industry. You know, they, they were only made for the, the, for the artists in the movies, um, transcriptions. And uh, so there were radio transcriptions and movie transcriptions and, you know, original pressings of like Judy Garland or Bing Crosby, you know, the Marx Brothers that were made just specifically for the movies, and there were very few copies of them made. So those were going for quite well on eBay when I first started. And I met guys like Michael Feinstein and David Guest, um, you know, because they were collectors of that kind of thing. And uh, so I, I was doing very well when I first started. It's much tougher now because the more people got into eBay, the more they had a sense that records were worth something, and, and the thrift stores, too. So tell me, uh, Steve, if vinyl is going bad, what's the next thing that you might be able to sell on the Internet? I'm thinking Orlon is next. (laughs) Is that right? (laughs) I've been saving comic books. Um, I think, you know, it's like playing the stock market. Um, I I heard Spielberg was going to do a movie based on this comic book from the 40s that went into the Silver Age called the Blackhawks. I don't know if you were into comics, but I love them. And so I started buying Blackhawk comic books because I figured, you know, a year or two when the movie comes out, that mo- comic's going to go through the roof, just like it was the case with Wonder Woman. and all. Everybody, all the comic book movies except Green Lantern, which unfortunately <laughs> sucked. But, uh, you know, so that, that's one way. You know, that's the thing with selling collectibles. You know, it's just like playing the stock market to some degree, you know, you Autographs. You know, if you could find an auto, you could get autographs of people that, like, I hate to say Dick Van Dyke. I have a Dick Van Dyke autograph. You know, I love the guy. I'm not going to sell it till after he dies because then it's going to, you know, go through the roof. Dick Van Dyke was at my local deli one time and, uh, and uh, he, he, uh, he left half a sandwich, so I ate it just so I could say it. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, two questions. What do you miss most about the past, and what do you love most about the present? Oh, interesting. Well, 
I, I'll tell you, anybody who worked at Paul's Club, that was the highlight of their life. The early 80s in Paul's Club, it, it was such a joy. You, you know, audiences at comedy clubs now, I, they're, they're not as hungry for it. They, they're more judgmental. These people were just totally open. Well, not totally, you know, but, you know, they were hungry for it. And uh, they, uh, they allowed for experimentation. No way I could get away with the crap now that I did then. And so, you know, I, despite the fact that I screwed around a lot on pull stage, I was still able to go out on the road as a comedy headliner and, you know, some nice clubs. And uh, that's what I miss. I love that. But, you know, I don't miss it that much because I'm pretty happy with being a Filipino Lolo <laughs> and selling <laughs> records out of my house. It gives me freedom. You know, I've always been very freedom-oriented. The thing I learned in school, more than anything else, is I hated sitting behind a desk. Hmm. And so I don't have to sit behind a desk, although I do sit behind a computer a lot. Well, it looks like we made it through another episode. If you enjoyed it, let us know. Or if you know somebody who'd be fun to interview, tell us about them. You can reach us at our website, olddogspodcast.com. And hey... Keep on howling at the moon.